scholar, a uh, fantastic person who um, came to um, the seminary I went to, and in, at that seminary he was considered someone who would be kind of naive, maybe gullible, con- too conservative. Um, I went to that kind of seminary. And so uh, he kind of got through the radar that, uh, or the detector, the evangelical detector somehow. And um, so he gave this wonderful lecture. And uh, then a student who was there, who was kind of hostile to Stott, um, she said, as someone who believes in the Bible literally, which I wouldn't say he did, but that's the way she put it. Um, she said, uh, what is your position on same-sex marriage? And uh, there was a long pause. It really didn't have anything to do with what he was talking about. There was a long pause, and then uh, he, he looked up, and he said, from the very beginning uh, to the very end of Scripture, um, you have this beautiful uh, depiction of a relationship that God created um, that was meant to reflect his own relationship with his people. And it's right here in Genesis uh, 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And he said, this is the climax of the creation story. The whole story of creation ends with this verse. It is the creative force behind an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, which means the greatest song. It is the core teaching of Christ on marriage. He mentions it three times in uh, he doesn't mention a lot of Old Testament verses three times. Um, it is also the center of the longest passage in the Bible, Paul's teaching on marriage, Ephesians 5. And finally, Stott said, it is also the consummation of all redemptive history in Revelation 21.2, that same idea. And uh, that's, that's all he would say. Um, but uh, he also mentioned that this one little verse probably has had more influence on the institution of marriage in the entire history of the world than any other uh, tract, book, uh, essay, poem ever written. Um, just this one little text. It's, China, it's amazing to think about what our world would be like without this, this text. Um, try to imagine a world without this. There would be a lot more polygamy. There's already a, a decent amount of polygamy. There would be a lot more uh, polyamory. There would be a lot more cohabitation. There'd be a lot more divorce, uh, there would be a lot more denigration of sex, and a lot of other religions, it's looked upon as somehow less than spiritual, and, um, and yet we take this for granted every day, this striking text. One of my favorite uh, British writers, uh, clever man, G.K. Chesterton, said that there are an infinite number of angles at which one might fall. Think about that. There's an infinite number of angles at which a thing might fall. Uh, but there's only one 90-degree angle at which a thing can stand. And I think a lot of times we spend a lot of energy, uh, a lot of thought, um, a lot of time thinking about the angles at which marriage can fall, all the ways that are not exactly what God intended for this to be. And that's okay, I suppose, but I think we need to make more room in our thoughts and our hearts for the one angle um, to talk about the one thing that God says is so good. And that's because this is why God came to the planet to die. He came to die for his bride. That's how much this idea, um, this core idea of a relationship between any two persons, not just a human and a human, but, but even God and his people. That's how important this is. So I want to Look at this uh, marriage of Adam and Eve. Um, you could even call it a wedding. 
And I want to look at two parts. Uh, first, the courtship before you get to that verse, and then the marriage itself. So the courtship first, and then the marriage, two points. So first of all, the part leading up to the marriage, which we'll call their dating or whatever you want to call it, courtship, however you want to refer to that. Um, in verse 18, you've got this beautiful statement. The Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good. Think about that. That's before the fall. That there's something that's not good. And what is not good is that this human Adam is alone. Again, this is a God who made the world and said after every day it is good. So you have the sun, moon, sea, sky, birds, fish. Good, 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 good. Everything's good. And then when he makes humans, very good. And then right here, um, it is not good. And again, that's astonishing. It just shows that God is not a jealous or petty God. That God is not a God uh, who has uh, FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out. He is not a God who says, I want to be all they'll ever need. He's not like Loki or Zeus or Venus or Baal. He's this three-person God who is completely content within himself. He says, we have all we need as he speaks to himself. And then he says, not only that, he says, let's give, let's give our greatest creation uh, the thing that we have. Let's give them the relationship that we have. And so it says in verse 18, what he does is he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, again, remember the problem is loneliness. It's not good that a man be alone or lonely. And so the helper... Uh, is going to be a helper in that sense. Uh, I did a wedding recently with a a couple, and the young woman said, "Um, I don't love the word helper, so could we find another translation where maybe that's not used? (laughs) Another word? And I said, no, probably not other uh, words are used. But I will tell you this, I said, the word in Hebrew is izer, uh, like Ebenezer, it comes from that. And the word um, means rescuer. So this is not like mama's little helper helping to cook and clean. This is like Yahweh rescues Israel from the Philistines. It's used 16 times in uh, the Bible, in the Old Testament. So if I am a helper of my daughter in calculus, that means I know a lot of things that she doesn't know about math. And if Eve is the helper or the rescuer of Adam in this area of relationships, that obviously means that she knows a lot of stuff that... He doesn't. And by the way, this is not just that Eve is only there for Adam, because when God made everything in Genesis 1, uh, he says about both man and woman, rule and, uh, and, and reign and govern this planet and garden it and water it and be fruitful and multiply. So that's given both to Adam and Eve. But in this one particular case, this intimacy question, she is a kind of a rescuer. For him. That's not all she does, but that is one thing she does. Now, she hasn't been made yet, and so first God brings the animals to Adam. And I think the animal parade is a kind of way of saying, are any of these things going to be helpers? So uh, it says in verse 19, every beast of the field and bird of the air come before Adam, maybe to help him appreciate Eve. So a sparrow flies by, and Adam names the sparrow, and he's like, that's not that's not enough. That's not going to be a helper. A parrot, you know, lands on his shoulder, and he's like, that's not it either. Uh, a koala, maybe, you know, the, no, he's like, that's not a helper either. A cat, 
It's like, no way, that is not at all, that is not going to do it at all. And even a dog, like even a golden retriever comes up and, you know, man's best friend, but even the dog, um, it's like, that's not going to take away the loneliness. So then in verse 21, the Lord God made Isha in Hebrew, Isha, and uh, brought her to Ish. So it's I-S-H-A, Isha, and then I-S-H. Uh, and Ish said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And that actually is um, the first utterance of any human being in scripture. And it's poetry. It's written in verse. And so, you know, you could almost say that Adam is singing. At last, finally, this is one who can take away my loneliness. This is, this is the one that is perfect for me. And if you know that song by Etta James, um, Beyonce also covered it. At last my love has come along, my lonely days are over, and life's a song. Ish sees Isha coming, you know, as if down an aisle, coming through maybe a grove of trees, and he bursts into this song. And I've done a lot of weddings, and I look over at the groom here, and I can see right there his look at his bride as she's coming down the aisle and I feel like at times he he would like to start singing he would like to do this what Adam is doing this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh like the um the Beach Boys song you know God only knows where I'd be without you I feel like that a lot of grooms would love to break into that song so that's the that's the courtship it's very short um it probably is a matter of minutes before he proposes to her he had no other options so you know this is the one he's going to go with it was love at first sight, um, and yet it was the perfect person for him. And um, that's point one, the courtship. So now point two, a lot more on this point, um, is the actual uh, wedding, the marriage, the relationship. Now she's there, and um, one thing about this is just how similar they are. Um, again, think about that. It's, um, it's like he's, he's never seen anything like him. So he's seen all these animals, but now it's like he's looking at a mirror, and she has a face. You know, he's probably thinking, That's a, that face is like my face, that uh, those eyes are like my eyes. And I can tell when she's staring at me that she's having thoughts that none of those other animals had, and so she's thinking about me. And then imagine when he heard her voice, that it was kind of like his voice, but it was not his voice, and how wonderfully different. Again, he's... Ish and she's Isha. And if you think about it just as a thought experiment, he could have made two Ish in the garden and that could have been simpler because they would have just been hanging out watching sports, fishing, playing video games, you know, getting along superficially. Um, But it would not be so daring and um, it would not be um, so challenging. It would not have reflected the diversity of the Trinity. Um, two women, two men, kind of very deep, intimate relationships, but there's something about the man and the woman here that is reflective of the diversity and the difference between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because of that, it takes the loneliness away uh, in a way that I don't think um, anything else could. And so here's the challenge of marriage as, I, as I've lived it um, for multiple years. It's that you're, you're binding yourself, and you kind of get tricked by your genes or whatever or by... Um, your chemicals into, into just absolutely falling in love with this person. And then you're tricked into realizing you're with someone who is very, very, very different from you. And you have bound yourself to them. 
And so um, imagine like elementary school kids, you know, on the playground, the, usually the girls are over here and the guys are over here. There's some mixture. But if you took one of these guys, one of these girls and said, you're going to be with one of them for the rest of your life, they would be like, no way, that's not going to happen. But then they become middle schoolers and high schoolers and they become interested in each other uh, and then in college or beyond that. And, and pretty soon, uh, two of these people come together and they bind themselves to one another forever. Um, they, they cleave to each other. The word is uh, make a covenant with each other. They hold fast. They become one flesh. And over the years, my wife and I have come to realize how different we are. We didn't know these things when we got married. Um, we, you kind of always marry a stranger in a, in a way. You know, you know a lot of stuff about him, but you don't really either. And so I came to realize that she asked a lot of questions, a lot of very detailed questions, and she would follow up with another question. And I'm trying to tell my story, and I don't want to be interrupted, and she's asking questions. And we came to realize that's a big difference between the two of us. I'm a very big-picture, intuitive guy. Uh, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm a huge N, and she is a huge S, and we didn't realize that, but I don't really like to get into the details, and so um, I uh, rarely prepare very well for things. I kind of fly by the seat of my pants, I wing it, and yet everything she does is incredibly well prepared and done with excellence. And so you can imagine the clash, the difference. Uh, my love language is, acts of, is physical touch, hers is acts of service. I am a lot more adventurous, she's a lot more careful, and um, it's very hard, it's very, very hard. If, if you're married, you know these things, that um, you're living with someone who's very different from you. And so there's this friction, I think that that is part of the plan. And usually when uh, couples begin to realize these massive differences that no one has ever challenged them on, because no roommate, parent, brother, sister has ever had to say forever, I'm gonna live with this person. So now they've got to figure out this way to deal with this challenge and this friction. Uh, but it's like a little grain of sand inside of a, an oyster. And eventually I think that if it just continues to grind and shape, you end up with this pearl of patience, understanding. And that's one of the things that God uses marriage to do is to sanctify us and uh, to smooth out our edges. And I would say if your marriage is not really grating in some way, it's not grinding against yourself, then it's not really doing what God intended it to do, uh, to sanctify you. Uh, one big issue in our marriage is food, and um, I would be you know, a different person if I had not married Margie as far as food goes, and she would also have been a very different person. Uh, her family almost never ate out. It was a really big deal for them to eat out. My family ate out constantly. Uh, I saw dinner as like the climax of the day, this is when you have this really big conversation, you relax, and she saw it more like getting food down into your body uh, to propel you forward with energy. And so one night, um, I remember in our apartment, uh, I had agreed, you know, I had sucked it up and was pouting a little bit. I had agreed, we're going we're gonna to eat in this evening. And uh, it was her turn to cook. So uh, I sat down at the table, and she brought out uh, bowls and spoons, and I was waiting for the plates and the forks and the knives, and then they never came out. And so then pretty soon, uh, milk came to the table, and that's not supposed to happen at dinner. And then a box of cereal came to the table, and, and I said, uh, you know, no one has cereal for dinner. And she was like, everyone has cereal for dinner at some point. And we just did not realize how completely different we were on food. And 
It sounds uh, trivial, but that really caused a lot of fights for years. Uh, even a little bit to this day, although it's gotten a, a lot better. And I would be so different in that area. I'm already still really uh, picky and gluttonous. Um, but if I hadn't married her, I can't imagine where I would be. And just in that one particular area, God says that you've got to leave your father and mother, leave your family of origin, the Milner family. I've got to stop being a Milner in a sense. And she's got to leave the Morgan family, and we've got to come together and create this new Milner-Morgan thing. It's not like either one of these things. And so one thing that I've got to give up, and you've got to give up if you're married, um, is the phrase, well, this is just the way the Milners always did it. Or this is the way the Morgans always did it. You know, we celebrate birthdays with tons of gifts and, um, and lots of uh, these well-planned, thoughtful uh, purchases for one another. And then the Morgans have cakes. They make homemade cakes for each other. I'd rather have an ice cream cake from Baskin-Robbins. And so the first birthday, I've got all these presents for her. She's got this big cake for me. And we're just missing each other on that front. But I've got to give up the Milner ways. She's got to give up the Morgan ways. We've got to find a new way. And so you can't expect your wife to be like your mom. Um, And maybe your mom was the one that changed every diaper. And you can't expect your husband to be like your dad who maybe fixed the car or mowed the lawn. And, and yet you just you import these things thoughtlessly into the marriage. Um, but God says to Adam and Eve, who didn't even have a father and mother, he says, you've got to leave your family of origin uh, for all, you know, Cain and Abel. Um, I guess they didn't really have to either. But, you know, at some point down the line, they've got to leave their family of origin and cleave to their other person and uh, make a new way. And I think that part of what that means is that marriage has got to be number one. Um, This is almost a controversial thing to say, but I I think it's got to be number one. The number one relationship in in your life, if you're married, has got to be your spouse. So one thing that means is the, the spouse is the first person that you share your, your good and your bad news with. Um, this summer, Margie had this very important PET scan to see if the cancer had spread from her breasts to the rest of her body, and we didn't know. We know it had spread, and we didn't know how far. And so when we got that PET scan back, and it was good news, we just fell to our knees uh, and began to weep like we never have in our lives. And it helped us understand the gospel, actually, what good news really means. But if she had shared that with, like, her mom uh, before me, I would have been absolutely devastated. Um, or if I uh, get a promotion at work and tell, like, my mom, that would probably be the worst person for me to tell, as far as Margie goes, if I told my mom. But even if I told a friend or my son, uh, that would not go well. And then when she got pregnant... You know, if you get pregnant, you definitely want to tell your husband first (laughs) or the father of that child. That's very important. Um, If you don't remember anything from the sermon, that's important. Um, That marriage, more than than friends, uh, more than even your parents, and this is a hard one, I think more than your children, uh, it's got to be marriage. And a lot of parents will put their child, not even realizing they're doing it over their... um, over their husband or wife. And, you know, God could have made a, a, a mother and a child in Eden. And in, in some cultures, they put the, the mother, the, the man puts the mother above the wife. That's just understood. 
Uh, in a lot of Arabic cultures, that's just the way it's done. But God didn't put a mother and a child in the garden. He put a husband and a wife to say that is the relationship. And Tim Keller is a pastor I like a lot, and he says, I think this is true, that if your marriage is going well, then everything in your life could be really hard and not good, but your life's basically good. But if your marriage is not going well, then everything in your life could be going generally pretty well, and your life's not going to be good. Because it's just that determinative and definitive of your life. And so, um, like half of our church goes to this marriage counselor in Winston, and one thing, I don't know if that's a compliment uh, or a criticism of our church, but half our church goes to this guy, and the thing that he tells all these couples um, is you, you've got to treat your marriage like a garden where you constantly water it and feed it and weed it, and you've got to give your best time to your marriage. Not your job, not your children, not your uh, hobbies, or avocations, but use your money to spend that on babysitters and have dates and go on vacations and prioritize that above your savings and your car, your house, whatever it is, that's number one, he says. And that really has helped a lot of, um, a lot of marriages in our church. Because he says, you know, again, the climax of the whole story of creation, this beautiful story of Genesis 1 and 2, it's this, the two become one flesh. Like, that's the way the whole thing comes to an end. And if you've seen any movie... Uh, you know, you know, the climax is where the whole thing comes to this beautiful point. If you've seen the new Avengers, uh, I'm not going to tell you what the climax is, but that is clearly the, the point of, uh, of the whole thing, uh, when Iron Man does that thing. And um, I won't tell you what he does. But when it says the two become one flesh, that's obviously got to be more than sex. I think it is sex, but it's more than that, because um, there's got to be a union there that is deeper than physical pleasure. And uh, I would say that it's psychological, it's emotional, and even, even within uh, physical intimacy, there is a lot psychologically going on there. Um, it's, it's spiritual. I think when a relationship becomes entirely physical, it kills a relationship, and it becomes very selfish. A pastor once told me, when I was not a pastor, he said, never take your clothes off in front of a person until you have laid your soul bare. Until you've taken all of your emotional clothes off, don't take your physical clothes off. And I think what he was saying there is that physical intimacy uh, without the spiritual uh, intimacy is going to be cheap. It's going to be like eating fast food, like going to McDonald's or Taco Bell, where uh, it's kind of artificial, it's kind of unreal. Uh, It's just about getting this sensation of pleasure. And um, it's the opposite of verse 25, which is, where I'll end this, um, this beautiful statement. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Uh, that's an amazing combination. Think about what that means. I think it's not just, it's obviously physical. They didn't wear any clothes at that point. But it's also, uh, it's a deeper than physical emotional transparency. And so it's, um, the uh, as one counseling professor I had said, the unique uh, the, the non-possessive delight in the unique particularity of the other that is established by a gaze. That, that there's, when you get married to someone, there's a gaze that you can have with that person. It's not always there, but you can have it that is really not available in other relationships because it gets too awkward. But if you have this 
uh, non-possessive delight in the unique particularity of the other. That's what naked and unashamed means. So you have all secrets are shared, you hold nothing back, you have totally open, honest, and vulnerable relationship. And the more naked we usually get, the more ashamed we get, right? Because it's a fallen world. And so the more transparent we are about our darkest past, our most disturbing memories, uh, the more you're going to feel shame. And so when you tell those stories, you kind of look down or you fidget and you don't want to make eye contact. And that's why we don't tell a lot of people those stories, but I think it's appropriate. You shouldn't just tell everyone those stories. But it's the reason we don't is because it is so shameful. But in marriage, you have a relationship where you can start to transform that. And you can actually be completely transparent and completely unashamed. And you hear this person tell you their story. My wife tells me the most horrible event in her past, and I look at her, and I still love her. And I don't flinch. And I say, I want you, and I love you. Even with that, I love you. And that's what begins to take the loneliness away, is when you can have that relationship with someone that is both naked and unashamed. I know that one of the reasons I married Margie is because I just told her these stories from my past before we got married, um, where she was already doing this, and I just began to say things to her I'd never said to anyone. She was such a good listener, and she was so uh, wonderfully affirming and warm. So I told her these things, and um, she just looked at me and listened. And uh, I began to actually look at her when I said these things. And it took away so much shame and so much loneliness to say those things to her. So all that sounds really great. And um, I wish that that were the state of marriage in general, but it is not. And we know in our country that uh, 40% of marriages end in divorce these days. And that might be lower than the actual number, but that's what I read. And then 70% of couples move in together before they get married. And I think the reason they're doing that is because they saw their parents have a really, really hard marriage, and they're nervous about marriage, and so they move in and they make a commitment that's beyond what they've actually made. And they do that because of that first statistic, I think, because of 40% of marriages ending in divorce. And I don't want to say that's just like out there, you know, they do those things out there. I mean, everyone who's married has a really hard relationship. There's just not going to be one that's not hard. And so if you're single and you think that if you get married, it's going to solve everything. The good news is it doesn't solve everything. Uh, if you're single and you think that's the, the silver bullet, it's really not at all. Um, there's a lot of loneliness in marriage. In fact, there's a kind of a loneliness that's in marriage that I don't think you'd ever have in, in singleness. There's a, there's a deeper loneliness to, if it was a really bad marriage. And so having said all that, I want to say that there's only one perfect marriage. And we're kind of moving to that here. As we come to this table, um, there's only one marriage. It's not Adam and Eve, and it's not me and my wife. There's only one perfect marriage, and it's between Christ and the church. And that is why God created the marriage between Adam and Eve. It was not about them. Uh, Ephesians 5.31 says this astonishing thing. First, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, and he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, remember what I said about one flesh and all what that means. Um, The naked and unashamed, all that stuff. Then Paul says, I am saying a great mystery here, but I am referring to Christ and the church. So when I say one flesh, 
That relationship of one flesh is a simply small um, appetizer of a much greater reality of the relationship that a human can have with their God uh, between Christ and the church. And, um, and so everything I've said about being naked and unashamed and not lonely, that is not primarily for a married person. That is primarily given by God for anyone who wants to come into a relationship with him and have that experience, that incredibly powerful experience of having all loneliness and all shame dissolved by the Lord's love. And if you think about like a wedding cake with those little, they have a little groom, a little bride on the top, you know, those wax figurines, you've seen those. That's about as real as our marriages are to the relationship between God and his people, if that makes sense. So the, the wax figurines are like any two of us that are married compared to the reality of God and his intentions for his people. So no matter how great your marriage is, it is nothing compared to the love, the passionate love. God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has put inside of us. He is passionate about his bride. And so that's why we come to this table, because this is a little foretaste, a little appetizer of the wedding feast of the Lamb, Christ's marriage one day to his church. Amen?